Well, good morning. I'm very aware who I'm speaking to this morning. Uh, I'm speaking to people who have chosen to come to Muskoka Bible Center for your summer vacation. You care about the church. You care about the Bible. You have not just come to NBC, but you decided to get up in time this morning. You've arranged your day to be here for morning chapel. So by and large, we're a group of people who love the Word of God. Uh, we, we love to dig into the Bible. And yet, I still wonder, for how many of us is reading the Bible uh, an exercise that we do, maybe out of routine? Maybe there are seasons in our life where we know it's what we ought to do. Maybe deep down, it's really what we want to do. But I'll tell you, I, I want to be a runner. I'm not a very good runner. And if it's not us then I wonder about the people in our lives, back at our home churches. Is the Bible just a boring portrait hanging on the wall? Or is it a window through which men and women and children who belong to Christ look through and catch a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of God? I know that that video, which was done by Desiring God, John Piper, that was his voice, He's talking about the whole Bible, but what he is saying about the Bible, I have found just in my own personal experience to be especially true of certain books of the Bible. It seems especially true, for example, of much of the Old Testament. And as an Old Testament scholar, one of my passions in life is to excite the church, to see the gospel not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Romans or the Pauline epistles, but in every page of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, which was the Bible of Jesus and his disciples and Paul and the other apostles. Uh, it's especially true if not just in the Old Testament, but in the prophets. Now, again, that might not be true of all of us, but I wonder how many of us have a steady diet of opening to that part of the Bible, to opening the Bible to, to the, the second half of the Old Testament, saying, I want to just know what these, these men of God had to say so many years ago in a place that I'm not that familiar with. And the prophets are especially hard, and I'm aware of this, because so much of their task, their assignment by God, was to warn God's people of coming judgment. And who really wants to open up to that and just get a healthy dose of where we fall short? It's not easy. I suspect that's why it's not easy to preach. My assignment, as I understand it from the Lord this week, is to take the book of Isaiah, which has been called a sealed book, and it's right in the book itself. It says that it has been sealed. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, God's grace, your cooperation, to unseal the scroll. So that if you were to commit to come every morning to every session of this morning chapel, at the end of the week, you will be equipped by God's grace and God's power, to go home, to open the book of Isaiah, to read it, and to have some understanding of what you're reading. Now, now some of you might be Isaiah experts, but it's, it's my hunch that there are a few non-Isaiah experts in the room. 
Because as much as we love the book of Isaiah at certain seasons in the church, and there's certain passages which are among the most cherished in the church, by and large, the book itself as a whole remains largely sealed, largely unread. Now, of course, having laid out before you what my assignment is, there are some very real obstacles to this assignment. I just want to give you three. First of all, this is a long book. There are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and I only have five sessions, and I'm well into my first of five. So we're going to have to pick up the pace. It's going to be a very big picture view. My goal is to give you all the tools that you need so that you can read the book and understand it. So I want to help you to understand what is in the book, and then you have to go and discover it for yourself. Second obstacle is that nobody understood the book of Isaiah when Isaiah preached it. This has always been a really, really difficult book to understand. Let me just give you a couple of verses from the book that will make this point. In Isaiah 29, verse 9, this is, uh, he's talking to uh, a group of leaders in Judah, and he says to them, astonish yourselves and be astonished, blind yourselves And be blind, be drunk but not with wine, stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. He has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. In other words, he sent you prophets and seers, but you can't perceive what they say to you. You can't see what they see. And then look at this, verse 11. And the vision of all this, and he's talking about what he himself has just said to these leaders. The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this. And he says, I can't, because it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this. And he says, I can't read. So in Isaiah's own ministry, he's preaching to the people, and he gets to a point in his ministry, he says, look, I've been preaching to you, I've been very plain about what God has shown me, and it's as if you're blind, it's as if you've covered your head, Uh, it's as if I were to give my preaching notes to someone, and you were to ask them to read it, and they say, oh, I can't, because it's like a scroll that is rolled up, and there's seals on it, and I don't have the authority to crack the seal, Or if somebody did crack the seals and rolled it open and you gave it to somebody and said, I would love to read this book for you, but I can't even read. So in Isaiah's own ministry, the book was very difficult to understand. And if they didn't understand it when Isaiah preached the book, we have our work cut out for us here this week. Thirdly, when people didn't understand Jesus, During his earthly ministry, he defended his ministry by appealing to the book of Isaiah. He says, you shouldn't be surprised that you have no idea what I'm saying to you. I just want to read to you uh, four verses from John 12. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself. Just as God was very open with the people, but in in the words of Isaiah, it was as if he was hiding himself. 
Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I was talking to my mom and dad on the weekend, and they were just going through the Gospels, and they said, you know, how is it that people didn't understand or believe in Jesus if they got to see all the things that he apparently did? Well, this is why. They did not believe him, and then John says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. So when Jesus was misunderstood, when people saw what he did and heard what he said and didn't believe, Jesus and then John after him appealed to the book of Isaiah and said, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that though God makes himself available, he hides himself in plain sight. Now I tell you all of this, and there's some self-interest in this for me, so that if at the end of the week you have no idea what I have said over the last five sessions together. And you say, I, he was talking, but I don't know what he said. I, I'm defending myself at the outset. If Isaiah, who wrote the book, and then Jesus, who is God incarnate, could not make this book legible for people and easy to understand, oh, we shouldn't expect too much from me. <laughs> and really, we'll never know if I was successful or not. At the end of the week... If you haven't understood what I said, if I was not at all comprehensible, maybe it's your fault. <laughs> I might have been very plain and very upfront with you about everything that God has said in the book of Isaiah, but for you, it's just a sealed book. So if the probability of success is small, on the other hand, I can't really fail. And on that note, I think it's time we go to the Lord in prayer and Plead with him to help us to understand these ancient words. Let's pray. Lord, as we open in or embark on this journey into the book of Isaiah, we ask you to open it for us. By your grace and your Holy Spirit, unseal the book so that we can understand it and we can catch a glimpse of you. We don't want to open our Bibles and to see a, a lifeless, boring portrait hanging on the wall. We want to come to our Bibles as looking through a window to behold you high and exalted, lifted up, holy, holy, holy. Now, God, who am I for this task? I am entirely dependent on your work in me and through me and in everyone who hears that you might minister to us, giving us knowledge in the place of ignorance, light in the place of darkness. I pray that you would help us to know who you are through the words of your great prophet and servant, Isaiah. I pray these things for God, you are the one and the only one who is exalted. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
regarding Isaiah 29, verses 9 to 12, and that's that portion that I read where um, Isaiah is speaking to the leaders of Judah, and he says, look, this is like a sealed book. One of my favorite um, commentators on the book of Isaiah is John Oswald, and this is what he writes about those verses. What Isaiah has seen is such a sealed scroll to these people. They have the technical skills to understand God's word, but they lack the spiritual insight which would enable them to see the very plain meaning. So, of course, the situation is hopeless for the common person. He cannot even read, let alone open and read. This is the part that gets a little harder. The church today is in a perilously similar situation. The pews are full of people who look to someone who can read, but for all too many who can do so, the document, meaning the book of Isaiah, is still sealed. I consider Oswald to be a sage of the word. Uh, He has devoted more than 40 years to studying this book, and he is uh, the first one to admit that this is not an easy book. He, He would admit that he is just beginning to understand the book relative to what is there. So I take his lamentable observation very seriously, and very personally. This is not an occasion where, where I'm pointing the finger at the church and saying the church needs to do better, but I take it upon myself. I've been seriously studying the book of Isaiah for six years now, and I too feel like a beginner. I feel like I'm just starting to discover God in this glorious book that he has given to us. Therefore, as is the case with all scripture, but especially a book that the Bible says is sealed, that cannot be understood apart from God's intervention and his grace, I want to begin by restating and underscoring that we together are totally dependent on the grace of God and the active work of the Holy Spirit. So this week, as you you are coming to morning chapel, continually invite the Holy Spirit to help you to understand and pray for me that he would make my words clear. Even so, for all the fanfare that we give the book of Isaiah, especially at Christmas and Easter, I mean, Handel's Messiah is is cherished because it has a lot of uh, text and lyrics that come right out of the book of Isaiah. And and most of us might, might have Isaiah wall art, you know, with a verse here or a verse there. But it's my belief just through my experience that the church, by and large, has pretty much lost, and I mean voluntarily lost, this ancient treasure. In in a generation where biblical literacy is dropping to alarming lows, the mere thought that we might open the book of Isaiah and Isaiah 1 and work our way through all 66 chapters is almost unheard of. It happens, but the appetite in the churches for it is dwindling, and therefore the motivation for a preacher to stand up and do it is waning. As I said, we may dip into some of our favorite passages, but they have more or less been ripped out of their original moorings so that we have no idea what their context was or what their contribution is 
to Isaiah's broader message. So why is this the case? Why is it that the church is voluntarily choosing to lose the book of Isaiah? Let me give you seven reasons. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly. And then I want to transition and spend the rest of our time looking at seven reasons why oh, we ought to fight for this book. That this is a 2,700-year-old treasure of God revealing himself to us. So why are we choosing voluntarily to lose the book of Isaiah? Number one, the book is long, as I said at the beginning. Uh, and because it is long, it is easier to parachute in to read a couple of familiar verses, feel that we have some grasp of those verses, and then parachute out. Dip in for a verse here and a verse there. But to actually start at, at Isaiah 1 and work our way through methodically the entire book, well, that just takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of work. And we're not very comfortable in the book, and so there's not a great incentive for us. Number two, as I said in the introduction, the book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament. So just getting the church back into the Old Testament is itself a challenge. And if we are going to get into the Old Testament, we're probably going to go to Genesis, and then Exodus, and then probably not Leviticus. And we'll probably go back to Genesis. And then read the beginning of Exodus again. Feel like we've been in the Old Testament for a long time and then get back to where we really feel comfortable, which is the Gospels and the letters of Paul. So if it's hard to get into the Old Testament, all the more difficult to get into the prophets. And if we're going to get into a prophet, well, let's choose like something manageable like Micah or Jonah. But Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah? No, thank you. Number three, the book of Isaiah just doesn't feel relevant to 21st century Canadian Christians. And why is this? Well, I mean, it's obvious that, that it doesn't feel relevant because it requires some familiarity with a time and a place that is far removed from our experience. Uh, it requires some familiarity with 8th to 6th century BC, Mesopotamian, and Middle Eastern history and politics. Now, you don't need to know a lot. You don't need to be an expert in those things. But it's really hard to understand the book if you have no idea what's going on in that part of the world in that time in history. And if you want a challenge, next time you're at the local Tim Hortons, or even if you're at your church cafe, if you have one of those things, and you're waiting in line to get your coffee on a Monday morning, at Tim Hortons, just turn to them and try to strike up a conversation about Sennacherib or the Rabshakeh or Nebuchadnezzar or King Ahaz or King Hezekiah. I mean, just people will glaze right over. It's really hard uh, even for a pastor or a preacher to convince his church that these lives matter for us today, that, that God was doing something in, in and through these people that will tell us something that we need to know for life in Canada today. It's really hard. It just doesn't feel relevant, even though it is. Number four, 
Uh, the book of Isaiah requires some biblical literacy. And, and not a lot, but some basic biblical literacy. It requires uh, not deep, in-depth knowledge of the whole Bible, but it does require some familiarity with the, the general plot of the Bible. Like, for example, if you don't know that uh, Israel split into two kingdoms after the reign of Solomon, it's hard to understand who is Isaiah talking to. Or if you don't know that they went into exile in 586 BC in Babylon, it'll be really hard to understand why the book is structured the way that it is. And you need those basic ideas to understand why the Lord is speaking the way he is through the prophet. Number five, the book of Isaiah is not linear. This does not read like a modern 21st century novel. You can't just start and there's going to be a plot that just unfolds from the beginning to the end in a nice, neat sequence. It's patched together more like a quilt or like a symphony of music where you have, you have pieces coming here and themes repeating and repeating. And sometimes it seems contradictory. And, and sometimes you wonder, well, when and where is Isaiah talking to and about. First we're over here, then we're over there, and he doesn't give you any indication. And so it's very hard to know, well, where is he now? And scholars have wrestled with this for a long, long time. Number six, the book of Isaiah has been supplanted by other books. I, I put Romans. I think that Isaiah is the Romans of the Old Testament. And if you know anything about Romans, Romans most comprehensively lays out the gospel, the doctrines of salvation. Uh, and we're more comfortable in Romans because Romans is talking to us in the language that we understand. Well, God did the very same thing uh, that he did through Paul in Romans about 700 years sooner through the prophet Isaiah. But it asks and answers questions that we feel we already have a handle on because we're familiar with other parts of the Bible. Number seven, why is the church voluntarily losing the book of Isaiah? It's because the book of Isaiah gives us a deep, penetrating, and balanced portrait of God. And you say, what? That's why we're choosing to give up? on the book? Precisely. Because the God we meet in Isaiah is not often the God that we think that we've come to church to worship. And if you were here last night, you got a taste of that. Now, I really am a nice guy, but Isaiah 2 is just hard. And you get in the book of Isaiah some of the most tender uh, gracious moments of God, but you also see God at his most severe. So we don't want to go there. We might be able to put up with that for three chapters in the book of Romans, but by the time we're halfway through Romans 3, we're quite ready for salvation, thank you very much. But in the book of Isaiah, salvation doesn't come, at least in earnest, in its full portrait until chapter 40. So you're not wrestling through two and a half chapters. You're wrestling through 40 chapters where God wants us to know who he is in all of his glory. And it makes me think of what Paul said, oh, the kindness and the severity of God. 
But are we really ready to worship God who is? Or do we want to worship a God after our own making? This is very dangerous for us in the church that we want to create God in our image the way we want him to be. We want to tame him a little bit. And the book of Isaiah makes that task of domesticating God impossible. These seven reasons, I believe, can be boiled down to one observation. And this is where I tie back to the video that we watched at the very beginning. I wonder if we are losing the book of Isaiah in the church today because, by and large, we do not believe that the book of Isaiah is worth all the work and the toil and the time required to understand it. As John Piper said in the video, why don't we read the Bible? At its root, we don't read the Bible because we don't want to read the Bible. And I wonder if that's why we are choosing to let go of the book of Isaiah. At its root, why don't we read the book of Isaiah? I wonder if it's because we don't want to read the book of Isaiah. And I say that to a group of people who might, you might be saying, well, I do want to read the book. And yes, I probably am preaching to the choir, but I'm talking more broadly in the church today. Now, I'm here this week to make the case that the book of Isaiah is a treasure. I have come to know God more through the book of Isaiah than any other book in the Bible. I have come to love God more because of the hours that I have spent trying to understand this ancient book than any other book of the Bible. I have come to understand and to know and to love Jesus Christ more because of the time I've spent in the book of Isaiah than any other book in the Bible. And I want that for us. I want that for you. I want that for the church. I want our roots to go deep down into the bedrock of God's word. And I want us to receive from God's word a knowledge of who God is in all his glory that we will be ready on the difficult days. When the storms come, when your life gets hard, how will you withstand the buffeting? How will you know without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God in heaven And he's a God who loves you. He's a God that has reached out his hands to you. He's a God who will deliver you. I really think that the answer is in the book of Isaiah. And that's why I want for you what God has given to me. I want to give you now seven reasons why I believe that Isaiah is worth fighting for in the church. And I hope that at the end of the week, you might go back to wherever it is that you came from and begin a conversation with people in your church and say, when's the last time you seriously considered reading through the book of Isaiah? Would you embark on that journey with me and we could explore it together because I want to see God. Why should we fight for the book of Isaiah? Number one, because the book of Isaiah, perhaps more than any other book, is a microcosm of the Bible. Now, I don't want to push this too far. I've read about it, and I I don't know, I've been back and forth whether or not this is true or not. But I think there's 
enough truth in it that I'm going to share it with you. The book is divided into different sections, and, and it's almost as if, and I underscore the almost, verses 1 to 39 really capture the essence of the Old Testament scriptures. In those chapters, judgment and the failure of God's people to earn a right standing with God under the old covenant becomes plainly evident. Now there's glimmers and shadows of hope. There's promises of deliverance. But by and large, by the time you get to the end of chapter 39, the people failed. They couldn't keep covenant with God. And because God is righteous and faithful to his covenant, he has to bring out the curses that he said he would on them. And that's where we are at the end of chapter 39. But then in chapter 40, there's a voice cried in the wilderness, which is exactly how the gospels start. And then from chapter 40 through 55, there's hardly any judgment. It's all about God saying, I told you that on the other side of judgment, I would deliver you and I will. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send my servant. He's going to die in your place. That's very New Testament. It's very gospel. Then you get to chapters 56 through 66, and that's where really Isaiah answers the question, well, if grace is going to abound through the servant, should we just go on sinning? And what Isaiah says in those chapters is absolutely not, by no means. There's two paths. If you've received the grace of God, then you live for him. And the book ends with a promise of a new heavens and a new earth and the promise of coming judgment. I mean, that sounds to me a lot like the Bible. Now, what's interesting about the book of Isaiah is look how it's weighted. Look how the Bible is weighted. Do you think there's a reason that God has given us far more in the book of Isaiah and far more in the Bible about our failure and about his perfect righteousness and about coming judgment than any other theme? Do you think that every word of God is intentionally placed, that God has even emphasized the things that he wants to emphasize in the Bible? And so why ought we downplay that very thing that God has chosen to front load with great emphasis, which is the coming judgment? Old Testament it's much longer than the New Testament. And chapters 1 to 39 are much longer than the second half of the book. So if you want to understand the Bible, you could start with just the book of Isaiah. John Oswald, who I've already uh, mentioned, has asserted that it, he has thought long and hard about this, and if he could keep just one book of the Bible, everything else would be burned, and it would be as if he never uh, read it before he would choose the book of Isaiah because he says there is no other book in the Bible that gives you the whole Bible the way the book of Isaiah does. Something to think about. Second reason why I believe that the book of Isaiah is worth fighting for is that it is instructive for both doctrine and practice. You know, in the church, there's those people who love doctrine. I just want to talk about theology and doctrine and, and, and think my way through the Bible. And then on the other side, you have people who's like, well, I don't have much time for doctrine. I just want to do good things. I want to, I want to be a Christian. I want to love people. I want to go out there and do things. Both groups, if they ignore the other, are wrong. There's no such thing as 
faith without practice. And there's no such thing as practice that comes without a good understanding of the gospel. Otherwise, it'll just be works-based. The book of Isaiah absolutely denies us the opportunity to rip doctrine apart from practice. Isaiah says, you have forgotten God. No, I haven't. I know a lot about God. I'm bringing my sacrifices. We're reading the Torah all of the time. He says, no, no, no. You have forgotten God because if you knew God, if you remembered who he was, then you would live with justice. So the book of Isaiah makes it absolutely impossible to divide doctrine and practice. And that's exactly what the church needs today. And whether you're in the, the, the doctrine group or the practice group, we need one another and we both need both. The book of Isaiah leads us in that direction. The third reason why I believe the book of Isaiah is worth fighting for is it helps us to understand the New Testament. Where do the New Testament writers get all of their understanding of God? From the Old Testament. And of the Old Testament, only the book of Psalms is cited more than the book of Isaiah. According to Ben Witherington, who is a New Testament scholar, he writes this. In some 300 pages of most any translation of the New Testament, there are over 400 quotes, paraphrases, or allusions to Isaiah. That more than one per page on even a conservative estimate. More strikingly, precisely in regard to the subjects that we find most central and crucial in the New Testament, having to do with Christology, that's who is Jesus, eschatology, what is the end going to be like, and soteriology, what, how are we saved, Isaiah is drawn on again and again to articulate the good news. So I would say that we cannot fully understand the New Testament until we understand Isaiah. Now, can you understand the, book, uh, the New Testament without having firsthand knowledge of Isaiah? Sure. But what you may not, or may not realize is that what you understand from the New Testament is taken right out of the book of Isaiah. And if you want to understand those things more deeply, go to the source, which is the book of Isaiah itself. As an example, Isaiah gives us the earliest clear promise of eternal life bodily resurrection from the dead, and the state of the universe after Christ returns. Reason number four that I believe that Isaiah is worth fighting for, and some of these overlap a little bit, it gives us a full expression of the gospel. Everything that we need to know about the gospel to be saved in a New Testament sense is in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, unlike many other Old Testament books, moves past the shadows. He, he gets right into predictive prophecy. He says, this is going to happen, and that is going to happen. And he talks to us very much like a New Testament writer talks to us. And all of this 700 years before Jesus was born. And you know what I love about that is it gives me great confidence that the things that I believe are true. Because God says, this is what I'm going to do. 700 years later, he does it. And the one through whom he told us what he was going to do, not in shadow form the way he spoke through Moses, but with just absolute clarity, I'm going to send a servant, he's going to carry your sin, he's going to die 
and your iniquity will be canceled and blotted out because of him. That's New Testament language thinking 700 years before the New Testament. Reason number five that I believe the book of Isaiah is worth fighting for in the church is that more than any other book in the Bible, more than the book of Romans, by far, it tells us why and it tells us how Gentiles get folded into God's covenant with Israel. And this is a great mystery, right? How is it that, that Israel's God had a plan of salvation for the whole world, for all of the nations? And if you just read your New Testament, it seems like that caught a lot of Jews by surprise. And yet, in the book of Isaiah, that's one of the major themes. That God is not just the God of Judah and Israel, but he's the God of every nation. He's the God of the whole universe. He's the God of creation. He's the God of new creation, the first and the last. There is no other God but him. And his plan has always been to save the world, all of the nations, through his servant Israel. His servant Israel failed, so he sent a servant to his servant for the nations. So if you want to understand, if you're a Gentile believer, how it is that you get a benefit in God's covenant with Israel, you can find the answers in the book of Isaiah. Number six, the reason that I believe the book of Isaiah is worth fighting for, these were the scriptures of John and Jesus. Understanding Isaiah helps us to understand how John the Baptist and Jesus Christ understood themselves. You know, when, when Jesus was growing up, his Bible was the Old Testament, and you can tell by the things that he says and the fact that he chose to, to inaugurate his ministry by going to Isaiah 61, that he discovered in his humanity through his communion with the Father through the Holy Spirit who he was, in the book of Isaiah. John the Baptist understood what his mission was because he saw himself in Isaiah 40. He says, that's where I fit. So if you want to get inside the head of John the Baptist, inside the head of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will give you the mind of Christ by reading this ancient book. The seventh reason that I believe the book of Isaiah is worth fighting for is the same as the seventh reason that I believe that the church has voluntarily let it go. It's that the book of Isaiah gives us a deep, penetrating and balanced portrait of God. Do you really want to know who your God is? You will find him in the book of Isaiah. And you might say, well, I thought he most fully revealed himself in Jesus, so I want to read the Gospels. Make no mistake, I am pro-Gospels. I'm pro-Romans and pro-New Testament, but you can get to know who Jesus is by reading the book of Isaiah. You want to see Christ in all his glory? Read Isaiah. Can you know God without reading the book of Isaiah? Sure. Of course you can. 
If you've never cracked the book of Isaiah, am I saying that you don't know God? No. But I don't know. I want to be very careful how I say this. I don't know if you can truly, fully know God. I'm not saying that you can't know him, but deeply know God without getting to know him through this book. We have four sessions left, and this is the plan. I'm going to go through the major sections of the book each and every morning. So there are four major sections in the book of Isaiah. So we're going to look at each one or one at a time over the next four days. So we start with uh, the introduction, which is chapters one through six. So tomorrow we'll go through one through six, and these chapters really give you a taste for the whole book. All of the major themes are in these first six chapters. The next major section is chapters 7 through 39. Uh, These are probably the most difficult chapters, although they also give us some of our most treasured passages, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Isaiah 7, 14, that's in that part. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Isaiah 9. And and there's many others. So some of our most cherished passages come from this section, but this is the most difficult section that is predominantly about Israel's failure and judgment. It's all about, can you trust God instead of trusting the nations? And then the third major section is chapters 40 through 55. Uh, You'll definitely want to be here for that week because that's all gospel. Comfort, comfort my people. Tell Jerusalem that her warfare is ended. She's played double for all her sins. That's where you get the servant songs. Uh, That's where you get the very clear portrait of Jesus emerging 700 years before he was even born. And then the last major section is Isaiah 56 through 66. And this is that that closing section which says, okay, in light of your salvation and redemption through the suffering servant, how are you going to live? Are you just gonna go back to your sin? Because if that's the case, uh, you've benefited nothing from God's salvation. So don't, don't think for a moment about cheap grace is what Isaiah is basically saying in different language. I want to end our time this morning with one last look at John chapter 12. I don't know if if you're familiar with this or not, but right after what I read to start where where nobody understood who who Jesus was and Jesus basically says, well, look, this is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that uh, I've blinded their eyes, I've closed their ears. Otherwise, they would turn to me and I would heal them. And then in verse 41, Isaiah said these things. What things? That God would reveal himself to the people, but they wouldn't see him or understand him. Because he, that is Isaiah, saw his glory. 
and spoke of him. This is amazing. What John is telling us there is when Isaiah had that vision of God high and exalted in Isaiah 6, I saw the Holy One high and lifted up and the train or the hem of his robe filled the temple and I fell down on my face. I said, woe is me, I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He beheld the majesty and the glory of God. What John writes here is the very one that Isaiah beheld was the pre-incarnate Christ. Isaiah's God is Jesus. What John here is saying is that Jesus is Yahweh. Do you want to know Christ? Do you, like Isaiah, want to behold his exalted glory? And come with me on a journey this week through the book of Isaiah. I feel like I have come to know and to love God better through this book, but I've also come to know and to love the prophet himself. And I love the prophet Isaiah and the gift that he has entrusted to us. May it not be for us a sealed book. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the prophecy that you have preserved for us that's now almost 3,000 years old. And this book has been read by your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by John the Baptist, all of the apostles. Uh, it has brought many people to faith. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch who didn't understand what he was reading, but you revealed it to him and he was saved. Lord, I pray for the church more broadly. I pray that you would rekindle in us a desire to know who you are fully and deeply and that you might take us to the book of Isaiah, that you would begin to bubble up in our hearts a desire to know more about this book. And even though it takes work and that we cannot really understand it at all apart from your gracious assistance, I pray that you would make us so hungry and thirsty to understand this book. Then you would unseal it for us so we would know you better. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who you revealed to us through your servant, Isaiah. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.